Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. In our last episode, we began an examination of the January 7th sentencing hearing for the three now-convicted men, with a look at the prosecutor's sentencing recommendations, the victim's impact statements from Ahmaud Arbery's family, and Prosecutor Linda Donikoski's argument in support of her recommendations. In this episode, we present excerpts from the sentencing arguments of defense attorneys Bob Rubin on behalf of Travis McMichael and Lara Hogue on behalf of Greg McMichael. That's all coming up right after the break. 
reviewing the conduct for which he was convicted. Because I agree with something she said, maybe for the first time in this trial. Travis McMichael woke up on that Sunday morning with his son Everett in his house. His goal was not to go out and kill somebody. His goal was to play with his kid. When he sat down for lunch with Everett, possibly with Greg and his mom, Lee and sister Lindsay, his goal was not to commit a crime that day or kill somebody that day. His goal was to have a family afternoon. And when he was putting his son down at one o'clock or so in the afternoon, he was doing what every single person wants to and should be doing, which is taking care of their toddler son. When he got in the truck at his father's behest, to find out who that person was sprinting down the road, his goal still was not to commit a crime. His goal still was not to hurt that person, but to merely investigate, to find out what was that guy doing back at the house where Matt Albanzi was motioning. And then four minutes later, Mr. Arbery's dead, Mr. McMichael's covered in blood, and we have what we have here and what the jury heard. And he was convicted. The jury found that his actions constituted malice murder, felony murder, and the underlying felonies. But this is not a case in which he just targeted someone recklessly, targeted someone without knowledge, misidentified someone. He knew Ahmaud Arbery. He had encountered him previously. And he had known about the fears that the neighbors felt at Mr. Arbery's continued presence. I'm not going to retry the case. The jury found that those facts did not add up to probable cause and did not justify Mr. McMichael's actions. But he didn't just go out and shoot Mr. Arbery. He only fired the shots, the fatal shots, when Mr. Arbery came at him and grabbed the gun, as Dr. Donahue demonstrated. And as reckless as those acts may have been, they are not evidence of a soul so blackened as to deserve to spend the rest of his life in prison. This was not a planned murder. This was not a murder involving torture. It was a fight over a gun that resulted in Mr. Arbery's death. And for that, the jury found Mr. McMichael guilty. The state contends that 99 good acts don't overcome one bad act. And of course, legally, that's true. Mr. McMichael is now a convicted felon. Letting other people support him, always paid taxes, always supported his community in a variety of ways. The discovery that we received is replete with FBI and GBI interviews of people in his community, people who told law enforcement officials of the times Mr. McMichael helped them, just as he thought he was doing on February 23rd. Actions that, in hindsight, turned out to be thoughtless, as Ms. Dunikowski said, were reckless, but were not evidence of an abandoned and malignant heart. Nothing in Travis McMichael's life suggests that he's a danger to society now or will be a danger to society 30 years from now after he has time to think, to work, to grow. When he's in his 60s, older than me right now, do we still need, want a person like Travis McMichael behind bars? There's nothing in his post-offense conduct that shows that he's either mentally unstable or a sociopath. He cooperated fully with police. He told the police everything he knew to tell them because he thought he was doing the right thing, even if that thing turned out not to be right. He and Greg McMichael thought they were helping their community. They thought they were helping the police catch someone who inexplicably had been in a house, and we still don't know what he was doing in the house, 
on four or five different occasions. He never fled. He never tried to obstruct the investigation. When he talked to his neighbors about what happened, he always expressed remorse and disbelief. If life without parole is reserved for the worst of offenders, those who are so scary, so unpredictable, and so likely to pose a threat in the future, then it is not appropriate for someone like Travis McMichael. The only purpose of a life without parole sentence, Your Honor, is vengeance. It's retribution. And the urge to seek vengeance is strong and understandable in the family. Lord knows if I was in their position, I would be seeking the same thing. But vengeance is not the foundation of our sentencing in our criminal justice system. Redemption is. Redemption is the belief that a person can learn, can grow, and still contribute after punishment. It is pointless to continue to punish a person who has undergone changes in character that distance him from the person who committed the crime decades previously. Travis McMichael, 35 years old now, should have the opportunity to show that he's grown, to show that he's changed, and the parole board, years from now, is in the best position to determine whether he should remain behind bars or can serve a useful purpose to society. Who knows where we will be as a society in 30 years? Why make a decision today that impacts so many people long after we're gone, long after you and I are retired, hopefully, but that binds the hands of those who will have to live with this decision three decades hence? Why make a decision today that snuffs out all possibility of growth of redemption in Travis McMichael? Compassion for Travis McMichael and the humility to admit that we don't know what's going to happen in the future doesn't diminish the compassion that we feel for Ahmaud Arbery's family. Their loss is real and understandable. And their desire for the maximum punishment is real and understandable. But again, that's why we have judges imposing sentence and not the families of the victim. Because there are a lot of factors this court takes into consideration. Deterrence, rehabilitation, retribution. Those are all valid factors. But the only thing an LWAP sentence serves is retribution. Wouldn't it be healing for Mr. Arbery's family, for Travis McMichael to atone, to be able to express the remorse that's in his heart without the specter of a federal trial hanging over his head? We've heard several times today that he's shown no remorse. But this court knows that no lawyer would allow Mr. McMichael to say anything about his feelings towards the family while there were two pending murder trials against him. When the witnesses were interviewed by law enforcement about Mr. McMichael's conversations with them, to a person they said that he showed remorse, that he never wanted to kill somebody. He was merely trying to detain Mr. Arbery for the police. It is disingenuous and unfair to expect Mr. McMichael to express remorse with yet another trial beginning in three weeks where everything he says can be used by the federal government against him. Wouldn't it be powerful, though, for Travis McMichael to look deep into himself and explore with the public, with his son Everett, why he did what he did and, in fact, become a force for good while in prison and out instead of one more old man behind bars costing taxpayers $50,000 a year or more in 30 years. Wouldn't it be healing to society for someone like Travis McMichael to be free to help heal the wounds that are certainly present in this country due to decades and decades and decades of discrimination, of racism, wounds that we're just now beginning to try to heal?
Judge, you can send a message that four minutes of conduct does not erase a life well lived, and that after punishment, there is opportunity for redemption, an opportunity that Travis can either take advantage of and prove himself worthy or not, and that the parole board can then determine whether he should be released from prison. We are not asking you to do anything, Your Honor, but to agree that we don't know today what the future holds. We're asking you to sentence him to life with the possibility of parole if it's earned. This court has wide discretion in how it fashions this sentence, and we'd ask the court to exercise this discretion in favor of growth, in favor of redemption, in favor of hope for not just the McMichael family, for not just Everett McMichael, but for the Arbery family and what Travis McMichael can prove himself worthy of in the future. Thank you, Honor. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. After Bob Rubin concludes his remarks, Lara Hogue approaches the lectern and offers arguments on behalf of Greg McMichael. During the first part of her statement, Hogue makes a technical argument against the prosecutor's interpretation of how some of the felony counts and felony murder counts should be merged into other counts for sentencing purposes. We will move past that portion of her presentation and directly into the section where Hogue argues that Judge Walmsley should sentence Greg McMichael to life with the possibility of parole. In her preamble to that argument, Hogue begins by countering some of Prosecutor Donikowski's assertions about Greg McMichael. We will present most of the defense attorney's preamble in this episode, and then the balance of her argument in our next episode. Hogue begins the preamble to her argument by referencing the prosecutor's original sentencing objectives in this trial. Between the two statutory sentencing options that are before this court, the state is asking for the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. They made that position known back in September of 2020, specifically September 16th of 2020, when they filed a notice of the state's intention to introduce evidence in aggravation of punishment. And in that notice, Your Honor, under the final box that's checked, the state indicated that it intended to seek life without the possibility of parole by relying upon three statutory code sections, 1651, which is simply the murder statute, 1710-2, which is the statute of criminal procedure that provides for what we're doing here today, the presentation of evidence in support of any sentence that each party is seeking, and finally, 1710-6.1. And that code section sets forth the inability for any individual who is incarcerated for the first time on a violent felony, which results in a sentence of life with the possibility of parole, to not be considered for any form of release or parole until after the service of 30 years in prison. 
Those were the reasons the state said we seek punishment of the defendant in this manner. And at the top of their notice of seeking aggravation of punishment, the state indicated in September of 2020 that they intend to introduce evidence of any convictions, juvenile adjudications, and other crimes of the defendant furnished as part of the reciprocal discovery. What the court knows is that there are no other crimes and no other pieces of evidence that support that statutory ground for seeking aggravation of punishment. So in the absence of that sort of evidence, which is the evidence the state indicated back in September it would provide, an absence, as the court knows from the bond hearing and having had those documents provided to it, there is an absence of any criminal history by Greg McMichael, which is a significant factor in your consideration of what sentence to impose. So without any of the aggravating evidence that was set forth in the notice, the state has told this court now, we wish to simply rely on the facts of the case. And in particular, what Ms. Dunikoski argued is, number one, what she called a pattern of vigilantism. But every example she gave, Your Honor, was not, in fact, vigilantism, gathering up folks who have no authority to do so and taking the law in your own hands. Her examples were notifications that Greg McMichael made to law enforcement about suspicious activity and suspicious people in their neighborhood. And in fact, that is exactly what a neighborhood watch program is all about. That's what Officer Rash testified to you. We need, we can't survive without neighbors who will let us know what's going on and provide us the evidence we need to investigate crime. Very different and not at all related to some sort of pattern of vigilantism, which is a violent act. In the next portion of her contextual preamble countering the portrait painted by the prosecution about Greg McMichael, Lara Hogue seems to make reference to her own controversial statement about Ahmaud Arbery's toenails, as she argues that she meant no offense to Ahmaud Arbery's family in her, quote, vigorous defense, end quote, of Greg McMichael, and that the prosecution has it wrong when they imply that his actions and the arguments of his attorneys demonstrate a lack of remorse from her client. The second fact on which the state said that they were relying, based on the facts of the case, to seek an aggravation of punishment from a life with parole, meaning no consideration for anything less than 30 years, all the way up to life with absolutely no window of opportunity, is that Greg McMichael has shown no remorse or empathy. The difficulty of our adversarial system, a system that is the best system we know of, is that it still leaves no opportunity for an accused to turn and be the person you know he's been for 66 years and offer condolences to another person for their sadness and for their loss. The other problem with the adversarial system that I know all too well is that an individual who is committed 
to telling the stories, to explaining to a jury how an individual got where they are right now often feels like a defense attack on the surviving relatives of this loved one. A vigorous defense often results in the sadness of people who have lost a loved one. But those are the roles that we honorably take on. Our remaining stoic in the face of heartbreaking testimony this morning from people who have lost a loved one is because that's our role in this courtroom. This court has very handily taken care of emotional outbursts to make sure that we're dealing with law and facts and not the kind of thing that can otherwise affect a court or a system that should remain free of those sorts of emotions. So, Your Honor, like Mr. Rubin said, it really isn't anything that I suspect the court will be taking into consideration the fact that Greg McMichael didn't and couldn't stand up and offer his genuine sadness and condolence for the loss of a loved one because he's facing other charges and trials on other crimes criminally and civilly. And I hope the court knows that what we need to do to tell his story in any case involving justification of which there was sufficient evidence to move forward with a request to charge, is that there has to be a clear, palpable, full-throated explanation to a jury about how it is that an individual put himself in a place where our clients felt they had to defend themselves. It must be terribly difficult to hear when it concerns your loved one who's no longer here. And it probably feels cold, but the court knows those are our roles, and it's the only way to make sure that our system operates as it should. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as we continue our examination of the sentencing hearing with the conclusion of Laura Hoag's arguments on behalf of Greg McMichael, as well as the statements of Kevin Goff on behalf of William Roddy Bryan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, the killing of Ahmad Arbery.